0: It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. I'm sorry to hear that Richard's ill. He's on vacation and ended up with COVID or something, I guess. So pray for him and his family. Um, it's not a very good vacation, and we all need one from time to time. But it's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. Uh, we were laughing back there when we were getting ready. We didn't. Uh, neither one of us uh, knew the first two hymns, so we were debating on who was going to mumble through it. And we I guess we decided we were both going to mumble through the first two, so uh, we'll do better on the last one for sure. But I would learn those. Uh, they're good hymns. And it's all right to throw in a new one every now and then, keep you honest. Uh, we get used to s- singing uh, the same ones over and over again. But again, thank you for the opportunity to share God's word with you this morning. And that's what I pray uh, we accomplish this day. When we trace the way in which the Old Testament develops its many themes throughout Scripture, what we are in a sense trying to do is eavesdrop on Jesus' conversation with two of his disciples in the road to Emmaus on the afternoon of his resurrection. We are in a sense trying to overhear what was said. The disciples, you'll recall, were dazed and confused because of Jesus' death. And he pointed them, you'll remember, to the scriptures. And he asked, do you not see how these scriptures show that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise again and enter his kingdom? And then extend that kingdom, if you will, to the whole world. And we know apparently They did not. Presumably, having memorized the scriptures, Jesus simply worked his way through them on that short journey. And later on, according to Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, we know for a period of several weeks, Jesus kept coming back to his disciples and showing them all the ways the Old Testament pointed to him. Now, when our Lord did this, and whenever he still does it, by his spirit through his word, hear that. When our Lord did this, and whenever he still does this, by his spirit through his word, three things happen. He provides an explanation of scripture. He brings understanding of the scriptures to mind. He illumines what he has explained. And finally, finally he creates a burning love for himself in the hearts of individuals. Whenever Jesus did this, and whenever he does this today through by the Spirit through his word, three things occur. He explains what you've read in His Word. He brings understanding of the things you've read in His Word. And finally, He creates a burning, burning love for Himself in the hearts of the individuals. You remember the reaction of the two disciples, right? Did not our hearts, what? Burn within us while He talked to us on the road? while he opened the scriptures to us. Now this is the purpose, or rather it should be the purpose of any Bible study. This is the purpose, or should be the purpose of any Bible study. It's the very thing each one of us should seek or desire every time we open the word of God. Whenever we read the word of God for ourselves, or hear read what the Bible says About Jesus. We read the Bible and look to him. To make sense out of what we've read. Amen. I hope this is your desire each and every time. To grant you understanding. To open your eyes. To see Christ in the word. Because when he does. Do not our hearts burn within us? Does not your heart burn within you? When Christ, by His Spirit, opens His Word to you in your daily study, does not your heart burn within you? Do you desire that daily? Do you seek that? John Wesley was fond of saying, and I love it, they are strangely warm." Has your heart ever been strangely warmed by the Scripture? I pray that it has. And if not, I pray that you would desire this day that that might occur in your heart, that you might be warmed within the very essence of your being, within your heart, as we see Christ in the Scriptures, and that's what we hope to do. Now, as I said, our hope this morning... It's just that. This isn't going to be a classic Presbyterian sermon, which if any of you know me, you know that I don't often give a classic Presbyterian sermon, but uh, three points, six points, 18 sub points. Uh, it's kind of like a Matthew Hen- Henry running commentary kind of deal. That's really not uh, how I do things. What we're going to do this morning is something a little different, and it's actually more than a one-week sermon, so we might only get through half of it, but if you like it, maybe you invite me back and I can share the other half with you on another date. But what we're going to do is we're going to attempt to do exactly what took place on that road. We're going to look at the Scriptures kind of like as a whole this morning. And we're going to eavesdrop or try to eavesdrop on that conversation that took place between the two disciples and Jesus on the road to Abyss after His resurrection. And we're going to try to attempt to understand what he might have said. Now, it's not speculation so much, I don't believe. But in essence, that's really what we're doing. We're trying to make sense. We're trying to see Jesus now in the scriptures. We want our hearts to be warmed within us as we note Christ throughout the entirety of scriptures. So this is more of it. Of a of a sermon this morning that's going to look at scripture as a whole. We do have two texts that we're going to look at Genesis three fifteen and First John three eight. But as we do, we're going to try to unravel what perhaps took place on that road and and pray that our hearts might be warmed by doing just that. Because there's no better place to start in all of scripture to understand or to. Uh, grow in grace as we, we, we look at Christ as he's been revealed to us through his word than in the book of beginnings, Genesis chapter 3. We see Christ clearly in what is known as a promised conflict, a promised conflict between two seeds. We see Christ clearly in the book of beginnings and Genesis chapter 3 in a promised conflict between two seeds. If you would, turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. We'll read only verse 15 for the sake of time. But we're going to take some time and, and really set the context this morning. A familiar one, Genesis 3 and verse 15. remind you that what is being read is the very word of God, and it would serve us well to pay it careful attention. This is the word of the Lord. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands true forever. Amen. Here we have, if you will, the first appearance of what is promised in this conflict between two seeds. It's the first hint we see in the Bible of the coming of a Redeemer. The seed of the woman. Now, as I said, the context is a familiar one, but we're going to take some time to just look at it this morning together. You remember you remember it well, I hope. It's your history. And if I could encourage you to do anything this morning, it's that one thing. Make Scripture your history. Make Scripture your story. In Christ, it is your story. It's your heritage. It's your people. It's your brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. I often talk with people who struggle, I do quite a bit of castling still, who struggle with identity, who they are. Their parents perhaps have split up, maybe they were abandoned as a child, etc., etc., and they wonder who they are, and where they come from, and and they struggle with that. And I, I remind them constantly that in Christ you have a rich and deep and glorious story, and a people, a people as numerous as the stars in the sky, you're not alone. So if I could encourage you with one thing this morning, it would be that. It would be seeing the scriptures as your story. In Christ, it is your story. You're part of that book, if you will. We pray that your name is recorded in and one day will be called. So I encourage you with that. But let's remind ourselves what takes place here in Genesis chapter 3. You remember that God created Adam and Eve and he placed them within this beautiful garden. Every tree, every plant, every form of vegetation in that garden was more beautiful to see and fruitful to taste than anything we could ever imagine. It was beautiful. The fruit was luscious. It's better than anything we've ever known since. But as we all know, there was one tree, right? There was one tree in the garden which God had said, Of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, you shall not eat. And the day you eat of it, you will die. Now consider this with me quickly. The point was not that there was anything inherently bad or poisonous in that tree. There's not anything inherently wrong with that particular tree. In fact, a close read of the text there will show you it's really described exactly in the same manner the other trees are. There's nothing inherently bad about it. It didn't give off a bad odor like it was producing poisonous fruit by any means. It didn't produce this rotten, smelly fruit that we would all walk up to and get close to and go, oh, oh, everything over here is so good. And yet this one tree, it's oh the odor it's no. No. Note this. The distinctive feature about this particular tree is this one thing. What God has said about that tree. It didn't look different. It wasn't half dead producing rotten fruit. It was beautiful. It probably produced not did probably, I'm pretty sure. It produced. Marvelous, luscious fruit. But God, the distinctive mark of this tree is what God says about that tree. What God had said about it. It's as if our all-generous creator, if you will, said of everything freely, eat, take, partake. I grant you whatever you want. But of this one tree, show your trust and obedience to me by staying away from it, by not eating it, by not partaking of it. Show that you trust me, your generous heavenly father, your creator who has given you all things. Show you trust and will obey me simply because I've told you to. Remember, that's the distinctive mark of this tree. The point is, God said, don't. And he was asking our first parents not to, not because they could tell the difference between a good tree and a bad tree, like I hope Rick can, right? But simply because God said, don't do it. And show me that you trust me and obey in that you obey and hear my word and respond accordingly. <laughs> That's the distinctive mark of the tree. See, far too often we look at this text through the lens of uh, an elementary Sunday school and we think, well, this tree was like, you know, a bad grandmother willow kind of tree, or uh, give me a weird tree, uh, Wizard Oz tree or something, right, hon? Help me here, I'm dying. I know there's a kid movie with bad trees in it. I just couldn't come up with them. But you get the point, right? It didn't scare them. The tree didn't scare them. They didn't plug their nose when they walked by it. God simply said, don't do it. Everything else is yours. Take, eat, be blessed. But of this tree, don't touch it. Don't eat from it. Not because you're smart and know what's rotten. There wasn't anything rotten in the garden at this time, was there? Nothing had died. Simply because they told he told them to. You see, what we have established here in the early pages of, of Genesis is the call of our heavenly Father to the life of faith. What we here have established quickly in God's inerrant or inspired inerrant infallible word. I pray our only rule of faith and practice is God's call to the life of faith. And he does it here in the garden. And it's that call of faith, if you know God's word, the call to the life of faith that runs from the beginning Of the scriptures. Clear through its end. No. Through its end. It starts here. And quite frankly. It never ends. And its origin as I said. Is found. In this creation narrative. But as we all know. The serpent appears. Right? Our best friend. I hope not. The serpent appears, and he does what he does. He's singing a different tune and song entirely. And he he argues, saying, did God set you in this garden with all these beautiful things, with all this luscious fruit, with all these uh, fruit-bearing trees that look so good and smell so good and taste so great and tell you you can't have any of it? And as we know, Eve unsuccessfully argues with the serpent, and she falls prey, as she will later admit, prey to the scheme of the serpent. I love what Alistair Begg writes here. She, Eve, assessed the significance of the tree through her eyes rather than through her ears instead of listening to what god said about it she thought about it only in terms of what she could see on it huh fast forward to david and what he saw on a rooftop remember that after all it looked delicious as well as attractive she this is beg writing she had not grasped the divine principle now catch this believers See with their ears, not with their eyes, by listening to the word of God. Let me say that again. Believers see with their ears, not with their eyes, by listening to the word of God. Close quote. That's Alistair Big. Now, isn't that always the way the deceiver actually operates? Isn't that always the way he operates? Satan uses the very best of God's gift to gain leverage on you and me. He uses the best to gain an advantage upon people like you and me to draw us into sin. And that's his tactic with Adam. As he brought the entire cosmos into ruin. God comes as we know. As we continue through the context. God comes and he exposes the nakedness and shame of this sinful pair. They make their pathetic excuses. The man blames the woman. The woman blames the man. The woman blames serpent. Excuse me. But then God pronounces three words of judgment. And you can see those there in chapter 3. But we're going to focus our attention on his judgment pronounced on the serpent. Again we read, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, seed, and her offspring, seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel." Close quote. This is the judgment pronounced on the serpent. But it contains a glorious gospel hope. A glorious gospel hope. Now, beloved, if that doesn't warm your heart, I don't know what will. God told our first parents, don't do it. When you do it, you will surely die. They did it. Just like you and I have done a thousand times. God has told us not to do it, and we've done it. Over and over again. Now, God would have been perfectly just to end all things right there. Bam. You blew it. It's over. I'm done with this. Gone. One word. It's all gone. See, but we don't look at it through that lens because we think it's about us. It's about Adam and Eve. Right? And it's not about Adam and Eve. It's about God, the Creator, who made all things, sustains all things, who clearly told our parents, don't do this. And they did it. And He would have been perfectly just to end all things right there. Game over. No more fruit. No more you or me. But He doesn't. God's grace and mercy. He comes and He pronounces judgment. And we know that our parents could have, our first parents could have died right there and then, but they don't. But they eventually do die. And he pronounces this judgment upon the serpent who has the scheme of deceiving that which he has created. For his glory. Newsflash, newsflash. You weren't created to bring glory and honor to your created creator's enemy. You weren't created to bring glory and honor to the deceiver. Yeah, that's a news flash. Come on, pastor. You're in a PCA church. Let me ask you this. Do you live as if you were created for that? Do you conduct your everyday life in a, man- in a manner that brings glory and honor? To the one who has given you freely, not of everything in a garden somewhere one day, a new garden. But has given you freely of his love through his son, Jesus Christ. Do you live as if? God has said, worship me and me alone. One of the biggest problems I think we have in the States, and my eyes were open even wider to this, is as I entered into Christians teaching Christians. Christians. We have a big problem in our country with self. The singular pronoun I is a problem here in our country. Me first. I first. There's an I in team in the United States. <laughs> For you sports people, that should be funny. There's never, we've grown up hurting, hearing over and over. There's not an I in team, Right? It takes a team. But we conduct ourselves as, the only thing that really matters is our kingdom. Our little king, our little individual kingdom. And we come on Sunday and we clean up real nice and we put on a little aftershave. I even put on a tie because I came to Roebuck today. I didn't want Richard yelling on Facebook live. I don't have a tie on or whatever it is. Right? We clean up real nice. What are we going to do when we leave today? To do then when your wife doesn't get to the car quickly enough, and you're ready to go, sitting there smiling all cute right now, husband and wife, make him wait ten minutes, see if he loses his sanctification. You know what I'm talking about, huh? And it happens over and over again. But here's the deceiver: he takes the very best. He took the very best and he yanked her, if you will, into esteem. And there was no better way to trick or trap Adam than to take the most prized possession of his and deceive it and pull it into his plan. And he does. He goes after Eve. Why? Because Adam was a sucker for Eve. Right? Right? And so are you and me too often. And not just Eve. Anything God's made good, and it looks good, and yet he still says, don't touch it. Don't do it. Not because you're brilliant, but, I mean, you are. Just simply because I said, don't do it, right? So he curses the serpent. Now, I told you, you might have to ask me back, and I'll know we did something worthwhile if you do someday so I can finish this. But let me ask you one question here, as you think about some things that I've laid out, as we see Christ early on in, in Genesis here. Let me ask you one question, and take a second to think about it. For what reason, for what reason, did the Son of God, the Son of Man, Jesus the Christ, for what reason did he appear? I wonder what the responses would be if we handed out a three-by-five card, and I asked that very question. I said, don't put your name on it. We're not judging anybody. Just answer this question for me. For what reason did Jesus come? Why did he appear? Turn with me, if you will, to our second text, 1 John chapter 3. In verse 8. Here's what John tells us. Whoever makes a practice of, of practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Now, listen, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy. The works of the devil. Have you ever considering considered the appearance of Christ Jesus as being for the purpose of destroying the works of the devil? Many years ago, there was a popular thing out called "possess a biblical worldview." Do you have a biblical worldview? It was the catchphrase in a lot of circles that I was running at that particular time, and and people were seeking to establish this idea of having a biblical worldview. As time has lapsed, as time has gone on, I've discovered we didn't do a very good job explaining to people what it is to have a biblical worldview. How do I know that? How can I say that? Well... I read Facebook posts. I was on Facebook the first time. My goal was to get over a 1,000 friends, and when I did, I quit. It drove my kids nuts. I just wanted to show them how crazy it was, right? Dad's going to join Facebook. I find it ridiculous. I don't really care what you had for supper. This is nuts. Who wants to be on Facebook? Look how silly this is. I joined Facebook. I told them when I get a 1,000 friends, I'm quitting. 1,385 friends and I shut it off. My kids still today mock me and make fun of me for that. I'm back on Facebook because now I'm in a different ministry and I need it all. So ah, I'm using technology for good, and not evil now. I haven't shown you what I eat for supper, right? Fair it's fair. But we have this thing called Facebook and I read Facebook. And I know professing Christians all the time. <laughs> And I don't comment much on Facebook. The worst thing for a pastor to do is actually comment on Facebook. You know that? If your pastor does it, tell him to stop. It'll come back to get him eventually. Put on somebody else, Bunyan's, Owen's, somebody else's quote. Don't put your own on there. O'Polm Robinson used to tell us, don't publish until you're dead. I have three books that I won't publish when I'm dead. So nobody can come back. But I read Facebook, and I read these things. And we're in a time in our nation right now where we can get rather angry about some things, can't we? That we can seem rather disgruntled about life in general. That we can shake our fist at God and say, are you there, and are you even good? I mean, really? Look what's happening here. I've been... Attacked on numerous occasions, attack might be too strong, but it felt that way after the fact. On actually leaving the church in America for the church in other parts of the world. Why would you do that? The church needs you now. Well, God has been gracious enough to show me that the church just isn't one little place, is it? That He's calling up people from every tribe, tongue, and nation around the world to be his people and it's their story too. And I want them to hear the story. But back to the Facebook thing. And I read these posts and I think, man, we spent a decade talking about possessing a biblical worldview. Let me ask you this. And don't answer it this way. I wish this, this thing, I wish it wasn't on But let me ask you a question, because I want get to preach every so often right now. Why do you think Joe Biden actually won the election? They cheated. They cheated. Look, more people voted than are actually alive in the United States. That's not rocket science. Look up the U.S. Census. One thing the Census tries to do is have a somewhat accurate depiction of who's actually alive, right? There were more people voted than are actually alive. They cheated. So now we have a bunch of Christians running around whining, complaining, and acting non Christ like because they cheated and won. <laughs> ask me if I'm a Democrat or a Republican. Ask me. <laughs> I walked off the camera. Ask me. goes in there and smile at me. I want you to ask me right now. Ask me, am I a Democrat or a Republican? Mary, ask me, please. These people don't what know are me. You? What are you? I'm a Christian. <laughs> Newsflash. God's God. He's not Democrat or Republican. Now, biblical worldview, where we call to your mind how it all took place. We don't have to throw stones here. We don't have to be disgruntled employees of the United States. We do have reason to cry. Don't get me wrong here. But (coughs) would you please interpret what's taking place in our country now biblically? He didn't come to power by accident. Amen, somebody. He didn't come to power by actually cheating, did he? He come to power how? God put him there. That's what Romans tells us. God put him there. Does not make it right? No. But here's the deal. Here's why I think God does things like that, to drive us good southern republicans crazy. He wants to see how we're going to act. Are you simply going to trust and obey me because I told you to? Or are you going to make your own decision because you can decipher between what's good and what's bad? You following me here? Now, that comment alone will make sure I don't come back. And I'm alright with that. And I'm alright with that. Because it's actually true though, isn't it? In the big scheme of things, now, I holler just like everybody else. Don't misunderstand me. I don't like paying $5 for a box of Little Debbie's I used to pay $0.99 cents for. Don't like it. They cut my snack budget down drastically. And if you knew me, you know, you're starting something there. I'll pay you $5 for gas. Don't bust into my snack budget. He's in it deep. So I got my own gripes. I'm not saying that. I'm not. Don't don't walk away and go, that guy, he's a Democrat. I'm not even a Democrat. But I want us Christians to think, and I really want us to interpret the world biblically. But things don't happen by chance or accident for us, do they? Do they? Oh. That includes who wins elections. I didn't say you had to like it. I don't like it. But does it mean I should stop talking to somebody? Does it mean I should not love my neighbor? Does it mean I should not turn the other cheek? Does it mean I shouldn't give my shoes and pants to after I gave my coat? Does it mean those things? All right. Why did Jesus come quickly? John tells us clearly to destroy all that garbage. You see, because that's the work of the deceiver. And we don't interpret it that way, do we? All that stuff is the work of the deceiver. Employ what's good, distort it, twist it, play with our minds, recruit a couple good people, And bring them all down. Think about it. Christ came to destroy. That is what we're told in the scriptures. The promise of it is here in Genesis 3.15. It's fulfilled. It consummated. When we're all out of here. In the new heaven. and the new earth of ours. You see right now. The gardener. Has returned and he's establishing his new garden. Amen. Think about it. And he's doing what is good and necessary. To accomplish his purpose. Not yours. Not mine. But his. Our prayer ought to be that our purpose would be what? His purpose. Okay, so Jesus comes. We're told Jesus comes to destroy the works of the devil. We're seeing the work of the devil all over the place today. People just don't like this. But it's true. And Christians are getting sucked into the wrong battles. We're getting sucked into his scheme. And it's causing division in the church. It's causing division within the people of God. And all I can hear over and over again, hey, do it because I said do it. Don't do it because I said don't do it. Don't do it because you think you know better than I do. Right? And Christ comes to destroy that battle within us. This age-long battle between two seeds. This ages long cosmic conflict. Between two seeds. It runs throughout the entirety of scripture. Do you interpret the world in which you live. Through the lens of God's word. And really think about that. Because every Christian in the world would go. Well most certainly I do. Right. And you stand there and you go. Huh. What about. You see, we have 66 books in the Bible, right? 39 in the old. That makes how many Rick in the new? 27, right, buddy? 66. We have an entire bookshelf of books collected and bound in one volume that reveal... This ages long cosmic conflict begun here in the garden in which we should interpret the world in which we live. As the redeemer or the one promised in the conflict has come, fulfilled his call, and we wait for him to return. Amen? We don't interpret the world in which we live that way. But we should. We should. If you don't believe me, I think we're in Genesis 3 still, right? If you turn one page, maybe in your Bible, I know I have to turn one page in my Bible, you're in Genesis 4. If you don't believe that this is the storyline or the underlying story of Scripture, turn one page. Chapter 4 records an interesting interaction between two brothers, right? Right? Cain and Abel? Isn't that in Genesis chapter 4? Cain and Abel. Now what took place there? One brother's sacrifice was received. The other's was rejected. Immediately we see what? Jealousy emerge and murder result. The seed of the serpent slays, if you will, or kills the seed of the woman. One page to the left. Go to Genesis chapter 10. We have a bunch of goofy people like you and me trying to build a structure to reach who? God. To unite the people. To build their own kingdom. Our kingdom will reach his kingdom. We'll merge kingdoms. We can co-rule. I don't know what they were thinking. Our sovereign God, omnipotent God, in all his power and knowledge, comes and does what? Destroys that kingdom and scatters it, unifies it. It continues. And that goes on and on and on through the, it's, it's the story of Daniel, it's the story of Nebuchadnezzar, it's the story throughout scripture. This ages long cosmic battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Do you interpret the world in which you live? Now, in conclusion this morning, just for this purpose. Do you read scripture in the context of the plot lines established? Do you read and interpret scripture Through the lens of the plots established early on in scripture. See, did we not from the text, did I not from the text, and please if I didn't tell me, establish this idea that perhaps we should read the entirety of scripture through the lens of this cosmic battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and how that plays out in our lives. You see, we're people who take and want to see Jesus in the Old Testament. And we have this idea out here in the New Covenant. And we want to jam it back into the Old Covenant. We don't need to do that. Jesus is there. He's promised right here in Genesis chapter 3. Now more importantly, not only do you study and, and seek to read scripture. And see Jesus revealed in the text through the plot lines established do you interpret the world in which you live in through that truth? Romans 1, they exchanged what for a lie? The truth for a lie. They suppressed the truth. They shoved it down. What did Adam and Eve do in the garden? They shoved the truth down in the ground. They ignored what God has said. And they did their own thing. We see it established over and over again. One last one, just for fun. That little serpent in the garden and the rest of this story, and you can read the same story in Revelation 21 and 22 just for, if you want to, right? That little serpent in the garden He becomes a dragon. Have you ever wondered if that serpent in the garden became the dragon because of all the people along the way he devoured? Who suppressed the truth for a lie and followed the deceiver? And all that serpent did was fill his belly with those he deceived. 1 Peter tells us, though, that seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3 becomes a dragon slayer. Father and God, we thank you for today. I thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to share your word. And Lord, I pray that you take all this, all this that we've talked about and that you would use it for your glory, that you would make sense out of it all. Father, we've derived it from your word. And I know that it's not in a manner in which we've been accustomed to, but in the same token, Lord, we've learned truth, rich truth from your word. Help us to interpret the world in which we live truly through the lens of scripture. Let us see the plot lines established. And Lord, please, as we study our Bibles, bless us with your spirit that you might come and explain them to us. (coughs) That you would make sense of them in our minds. And that as we see Christ, our hearts would be warmed. Deeply warmed. For your glory and honor alone we ask it. For the establishment of your kingdom. Once and for all. Amen.